Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, friend. What is astonishing you? Well, I am astonished by a surge of gratitude. Um, and I know gratitude is, is more than... Uh, feeling more than an emotion. Gratitude really is something that you should be intentional about. Um, you should give thanks even when you don't feel like it, right? Uh, but I'm feeling grateful because my second COVID shot is coming up this Friday, Good Friday. And for our house, it's a big deal. Um, my wife and I were having a conversation a couple of days ago um, which is a good thing to do. You ought to talk to your spouse and uh, I highly recommend it, uh, recommend it. Um, and we were talking about our, our friends and people we know and comparing our COVID experience with theirs. And, um, and we, we've really had a different experience than a lot of the people we know. I mean, we've really stayed home. Um, we have done a lot of online shopping, like a lot of people, but we really have stayed close to home or inside of our home. I mean, our child's school is less than five minutes away, and we just really haven't done much away from home. And, um, you know, I was saying to, to you earlier, I haven't seen my parents in a year, my sisters in a year, and I am feeling like I'm coming to the end of this like real heavy season. Um, I know there's work, lots of work to do to re-enter uh, life, to find a new norm, but I'm, I'm grateful that this next phase seems to be upon us because especially with all the racism that's been in the news and that's been revealed in our society once again um, in this past year, um, you know, my wife is Korean and um, I'm African-American. We have really felt a sense of just being under attack and have stopped normal practices like walking through the neighborhood for exercise. Like my wife, our, we live in a neighborhood in which all of the mailboxes are in a central location, not in front of your house. And my wife said to me the other day, I'm, I'm going to go get the mail. I'm just going to walk to the mail. And this surge of anxiety just came up within me. And it was, it just took everything for me to say, okay, I'll see you when you get back. That was really difficult. I mean, that's the kind of pressure we've been under for a year. And um, I'm just looking forward to the time when I can go to my parents' house, eat my mother's cooking, see my sister's um, and just, um, just kind of exhale, because uh, we have been really, really tight um, for 12 months, and it's been exhausting. I mean, mm -hmm. on the flip side, it's been wonderful to spend so much time at home with my family. I love being at home, but it has been a really hard year. So I, I'm just really grateful that this second COVID shot is coming up on Friday. And um, hopefully in about a month, we'll be hitting the road. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because like for this past year, you know, there's really two levels that we experience reality and there's like our, our personal life, which can be filled with like life-giving and meaningful relationships that ground us and give us joy and strength and hope. And then there's the reality of kind of, you know, the culture we're in, the national reality that, you know, and, and I think as a, um, just, I mean, I think as a human, but especially as a believer, like you have to be willing to sort of um, live in both of those spaces, right? So there's what's happening in your personal life. And then there's what's happening in the world that matters, but isn't happening to you directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, although sometimes you feel like it could be happening to you directly too. And I think like for this past year, because so much of the normal daily activities that give us joy and strength and hope and grounding in the goodness of God have been taken away and the goodness of life that comes from God, all those things have been taken away. And so then we don't have anywhere else to live except in sort of the national and international realities of that are tragedies. Right. And like, I just remember having this conversation with my kids, especially my, my middle one, Quinn, and we'd always been like, you know, everything, everything's terrible on the news. All, all the news is terrible all the time. It's terrible. And I'm like, well, baby, yes, because that's what makes it news, right? When things are working the way they're supposed to, that's not a news story. You know, so she, I mean, as a little kid, um, you know, her whole life, she's grown up listening to stories about, I mean, anytime she ever hears a story about the police, it's something horrific that they've done. And I refuse to shelter her from that. That's true. Um, And I have to remind her that these things make the news because they are abnormal because they are not the way it's supposed to be. And when it does work the way it's supposed to, that's not news, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you mm -hmm. know, and, and woe that we would ever get to a time when, you know, a law enforcement officer doing their job is news. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, that would be a horrific thing. And so, and I, as much as, you know, I think you hear people, um, I'm sorry, this is a tangent, but you hear people say like, oh, we need more positive coverage of the police. And I'm like, no, I mean, it would be bad if we felt like it needs to make the six o'clock news nationally because a police officer did something correctly. Like this is as sort of counterintuitive as it is, the fact that we um, do have um, a national, you know, time of outrage every time this happens I mean, it is a good thing. It means that people have not accepted that this is inevitable and this is the norm, right? Like that's important to me um, as opposed to say, you know, gun violence, which I feel like, you know, every time there's a shooting, you know, it barely makes national news anymore because we have just said, uh, this is what, this is what happens. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that if someone gets cancer, it doesn't, it, you know, it remains in your personal network, but not anyway, I, I guess I'm just saying for the past year, many of us, and I think you in particular have not had access to the things that give you hope and joy and meaning on your, in your personal life, because you've had to pull back from so much of that because we all have. Um, so we don't have anywhere else to live except in the meta narratives of national and international news. And it's not good. <laughs> like, I mean, 
Yeah. And it, it takes a toil a toll because you have these real stories of ways that people of different ethnicities are destroying and wounding. And you don't have a personal life of saying like, okay, but in my personal connections, I have life-giving relationships with people of other ethnicities that you don't have that if you can't leave your house. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, it was a long tangent to nowhere. It's a tough week. I would say, <laughs> here's what is astonishing me. It's the flip side of your coin. Um, we are finally at the point where the church I serve is beginning you know, has set a date and is ready to make plans for resuming in-person worship services, which, I mean, to your point is like the initial wave is just like, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful. Like I knew this day would come and also I feared it would never come, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's there and it's reasonably soon for Sunday in June, like that is just a flood of, um, relief and joy and then after that comes this flood of like pressure because now we have a million decisions to make about how we do this well and you know our building has basically been sitting unused for a year and so how we go in and sort of you know make it make it functional again and how we make a, just a million decisions about you know, what, what we're going to ask people to do and how we're going to handle people if they don't feel comfortable doing that. And little things like, you know, all of a sudden we have to have a plan for how people enter and exit the building. Like we've never had to do that before. And we have to figure out, you know, what's the plan for how we're going to share that with people and who's going to be in charge of that. And how do we train those people to be clear, but not officious. And I mean, just all like, it's just, I'm just recognizing that whatever and people have been saying this all along that closing everything down was a loss but it was easy mm. and reopening things is a gift and it's joy but it's hard it's just so difficult yes and and that's not even there's a whole other level of just <laughs> existential <laughs> anguish <laughs> that i'm calling astonishment that like I don't know who's in our church anymore. Like, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Like there are some people during this period that I have had the chance to connect with in meaningful ways and other people that I haven't. And I don't know if that's just because everything's fine. And they, I mean, you know, you just, you just don't know. And especially and we were talking about this before we started recording, like it's so challenging to do the work to create these worship videos and um, to want to, need to you know, devote the same level of preparation. And we, we've talked a million times, I know it's boring for people, but we've talked a million times about how much harder it is to lead worship in this format, right? So it's just mm -hmm. hard and we've been doing that work. And there are people that I know are plugged in and finding these meaningful. I know that. And then there's just a whole huge swash of people that I just don't know. I don't know if I don't hear from you because you're, and I don't have any opinion about that. Like I don't, it's not, I mean, it's awkward because if you ask people, how's it going? 
it sounds like you're asking them to stroke your ego, right? So mm-hmm. I, you know, you can't really do that. But on the other time, like, I don't know if you are connecting to worship and it's meaningful to you. I don't know if you're not connecting to worship um, because you just can't do another thing on a screen. And I don't have any judgment about that. I just don't know. I don't know if you are coming to worship you know, you're connecting to worship and it's not meaningful to you. I just, you know, there's just this huge X factor of sometimes I think perhaps we have really had a spiritual journey, a wilderness time, all of us that will bring us to the other side of this season, um, having grown in really beautiful and profound ways. (laughs) And other times I think, Uh, maybe not so much. (laughs) I feel like that's been sort of the big unknown out there to be discovered at some date in the future. And now the future starts June 6th. And so it's just going to be this time of really, you know, discovering what in a lot of ways, I know what my experience of the last year has been, but I don't know what the church's experience of the last year Mm. has been. And so we'll be discovering that once we resume some things in person and um also knowing that again it won't be like flipping a switch so what i think in june about how the church has grown and changed might be very different than what i perceive in september it just feels like you have been like doing your job blind Mm. for the last year and you're about to have a reveal and find out how you did. Ooh, oh, that's <laughs> so, good. Like, I'm really happy to go back. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, like spending a whole year in college with no grades and then all of a sudden discovering, are you going to flunk out or I... be promoted? So that's what's astonishing me is it's on the horizon and the amount of work to get there is really overwhelming. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. This is like, that's just keeping it real today. (laughs) I'm very happy to go back and I'm just very overwhelmed. Yeah. And it's, it comes at the end of an exhausting season. So you're already tired from having to shift worship to online, shift a lot of things to being online and now to go back is a lot of work and you're and you and you begin tired <laughs> you're already tired right. and i mean obviously not just us as pastors but every single person in everybody's tired right? yes and so i'm very aware of the fact mm-hmm. that you know i'm really trying to um take responsibility for my own um spiritual grounding and emotional health and really remember that I'm not, you know, the congregational, the congregation is not here to meet my emotional needs. Like Jesus is sufficient for that. And I need to take responsibility for that. And also to recognize that, you know, I need the church, the body of Christ to be a soft place for people. Right. And there are very few soft places in the world right now. I mean, I think that's, what's going to be so interesting uh, as we begin lots of institutions begin to reopen, I just think there's just going to be this flood of institutional anxiety in every, in every space, you know, as, as um, other institutions quote, come back, whatever that looks like. I think a lot of people are saying like, okay, now we have to play catch up 
for the last year, we have to quote, make up for the last year. And the reality is like, I don't know that that's possible. Mm. I don't know that it's necessary. I mean, we all went through a global pandemic together, but I mean, I hear it. I mean, especially having kids, I mean, I hear it in educational spaces all the time. And I think, you know, people who are leading institutions, they have anxiety about the health and strength of their institution and sometimes pass that along to the people, employees or participants or whoever. Mm -hmm. And um, I really think as leaders, we have to take responsibility for our own emotions and not do that. And not do that, right? And to sort sort of be able to trust God in this season, um, and and not be one more place mm. screaming in people's ears saying, "It's all up to you. Do this or not." I'm gonna say more, <laughs> more, more because a lot of institutions Correct. are gonna put pressure on people and demand their time. And so I'm asking myself, in response to everything you're saying, how does the church? receive and walk in the words of Jesus when he said, my yoke is easy right? and my burden is light. Yeah. Right? If, if, if we can do that in this next season as we re-enter, I think that would just be an enormous blessing, not only to the, to the present body of Christ, but for those who enter in post-pandemic, if we can be, as you said, a soft place, a place of easy yoke and light burden. I'm not right. quite sure what that looks like. But yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was just, um, I just got the um, the book. Now I can't think of his name. Oh, well, no, it's right in front of me. Uh, Dale something, who just wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. Hmm. Um, but basically, a and, and it's controversial. All the theobrogians hate it because they think it makes Jesus like wussy and um, Did unmanly. you say theobrogians? Theobrogians. And I would love to take credit for coining that phrase, but I did not. But isn't oh, it perfect? Like great. all the um, hipsters, skinny jeans wearing, but yeah, um, like oh, people have come together to denounce, to denounce this book mm. because it's not orthodox enough because it's talking about the um, gentle and lowly, like the heart of Jesus is gentle yeah. and lowly, but that's from that verse. Um, wow. you know, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden for my yoke is easy. Um, because my heart, my heart mm -hmm. is gentle and lowly. Mm -hmm. Like that's what mm -hmm. Jesus says about his own heart. And so I do yeah. think that, you know, in this season where there's so much existential anxiety about what's happened, what's going to happen, you know, we've, we've all heard a million speeches and news articles about, you know, X percentage of schools, X percentage of businesses, X percentages of churches are not going to make it. And so, mm -hmm. so everybody is coming out thinking, oh gosh, will we make it or not? Mm -hmm. And there's all this anxiety. And I think it's really important as a church to go like, wait, 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 wait. We are not making or creating anything. We are showing up to be responsive and participate in what God is doing. Mm. So we are finding our identity in our acceptedness in Jesus. That's our ground of being. Thank you, Paul Tillich. That's it. It's unshakable. It's not at stake. <laughs> we have all the time in the world and all the time in eternity to enjoy this, this life we have in Jesus. 
And that has to be our orientation. We have to be the one place who remembers like, hey, the whole world might be scrambling to survive the pandemic. The body of Christ was never threatened by the pandemic. And I, you, we together are part of the body in Christ. So institutions will rise and fall and that's okay because our identity and our hope is not in those institutions. Um, wow, I that really walking with that. That reminds me of uh, the place in Exodus where Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? All the let my people go. But I'm always surprised by the, the why. So Moses says to Pharaoh, God said, let his people go so that they can worship. Mm -hmm. Worship. Like that, that was it not build anything, not create institution mm -hmm. so that they can worship. Mm -hmm. Like, huh, what, what if in this next season, this next phase, the emphasis is just on so that we might worship, that we might worship mm -hmm. and forget all of the programmatic stuff that we fill the church calendar with all of the, I mean, of course, you need some administrative stuff, but that let's let's put that in the back seat. What if we just focused on gathering for worship? Well, and I do think that you know it's just going to be really important in this season. Like we really do have a chance to recover our identity as people who respond to God as opposed to create for God, right? Like we can really sort of have a Babylon recovery group, right? So for people who are not familiar, um, a story in Genesis 11 is people coming together to build a great tower. And um, the, uh, the God hears about this and the council of heaven hears about this and says, you know, we need to stop this because if they build this great tower that reaches up into heaven, you know, they, they, we won't be able to stop them. And so God comes down and um, knocks over the tower and scatters the people and, um, you know, gives them different languages. Um, and that's why it's called Babylon, because all of a sudden the people could not understand one another because they were all speaking different languages. And it sounded like babble, babble, babble. And I think, um, you know, that's a huge, that's an, that's an iconic story in um, Christian, uh, in the Christian story. Um, and, and Pentecost is kind of seen as the undoing of that. But, but before you undo it, you have to think about like, why, like, what was the big deal about people building a, a tall tower? Like, why was that um, disturbing in God's eyes? And I, I think, you know, they, uh, my read is they're building this tall tower so that they can get up into the heavenly places on their own. Um, so that they can sort of bypass God and do godly things um, without God's presence or anointing or leadership. And, and I think, you know, we have this, um, you know, it's a, it's a well, as many things are like, it's a well-meaning thing. They were like, gosh, I, God, I love you so much. I'm going to do something great for you and do something great in your name. I'm like, you know, again, like David and Solomon saying like, let me build you this great temple. And, and if you look at the stories of that, you're like God tells David, heck, no, I don't want your great temple. Um, and, and I think we often say, um, oh, that's because God was 
displeased with David with his ethical um, choices, which I mean, God was, but that's not why God didn't want Solomon to build a temple either. And the, and the reason that God says, I think it's at first Kings is Solomon is saying to God, I'm going to do this and this for you. And God says back, it's not what I want. I want a temple in the hearts of the people. And so, you know, Solomon is going on and on about how great and impressive and the finest materials or whatever. And God's response back is, but my, I want my temple to be in the hearts of my people. I don't want you to do something for me. I want you to allow me to do something in and through you. I want you to do something with me. Um, God does not need us to produce. Pharaoh needs us to produce. God calls us to worship and rest and receive a light and easy burden. And that is just That's something good. that religious people, we just, oh, we have such a hard time with it. No. That's so good. So anyway, That's I'm so have good. that nailed. <laughs> That's so good. Oh. Well, and so still oh, the question before us is what does that look like? How do we, how do we live? What does that look like? Exactly. And, and like we just don't know yet. Right. Right. But I do think, I mean, like part of the point of having this conversation is to talk about like, what is the role of the pastor? I do think, you know, the role of the pastor in our communities is just to continually remind people of, Hey, um, nothing's at stake here. Mm. Nothing's at stake here. I mean, as I'm, we were saying this, like, no one cares more than me about the growth. I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. I love this work. I, I love these people. I, there's nothing, you know, there's no level of excellence that I don't want to put into this. Um, and also, what gives us life, what gives us hope, what gives us strength, what gives us identity is the risen Jesus. And he is not at stake. <laughs> and so to be able to walk in that and freedom um, is I think going to be so, you know, A, we're not good at it even before the pandemic happened, but in this season, that is going to be so important and so life-giving um, and ironically so attractive. Yeah, I'm reminded in this moment that it was after the Israelites returned to Israel after they'd been in Babylon for 70 years. I think it's it's post Babylon that you see the rise of the synagogue, right? So right. they have this new practice for this new situation and we just need to be open to whatever new practice God wants to give us in this next season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because our impulse is going to be Tower of Babel. Let's rebuild what we let's had. Rebuild before. the temple. Yeah. yeah. Let's 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 yeah. what we had before the pandemic. Let's just rebuild that. Let's get it back. Yeah. Let's get back everything. That and God we wants want. to give us something yeah. new and fresh and fitting for yeah. this season. Mm-hmm. Well, I know what you're thinking about. So launch in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you and I were having a conversation um, yesterday on the phone because we are actual friends and we talk to each other um, outside of Zoom. And you mentioned um, little Nas X, little Nas X and Satan shoes. And I thought, okay, I'll look this up. This has got to be a bit of a joke, but whatever. So I started looking this stuff up. I was like, holy cow, this is a thing. And so I spent last night watching lots of news clips and YouTube videos and reading articles. And 
Um, for those who don't know, um, let's see. Uh, the rapper Lil Nas X has partnered with a company in New York, and they have modified a Nike shoe. Well, uh, people should know, you think you don't know who Lil Nas X is, but last summer, two summers ago, Old Town Road. there was a song, Old Town Road, that was everywhere. <laughs> Which everywhere. was fire. I mean, that song was great. Oh, <laughs> okay. all right. Hold I mean, on. See what I did just then? Uh, it was fire. But Same um, shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if people don't know who this is, you you yes. do know who this is. With Billy um, Ray Cyrus, yes. And lots of other people, yes. yes and and yes. it was controversial, right? Because it was shut out of the Country Music Awards. That's right. Even though, I mean, how much more of a country sh song could anything be? But because he was a rap artist, like people, anyway, it was kind of a, it was a- And they even did the two-step in the video. I mean, come on. I mean, take my horse down to and Old Town Road. And he wears cowboy fringes. So and, I can't yeah. no more. Like, it's, anyway, whatever. Yes, yes. It's fine. Um so, so, so this, he's partnered with this. He's he's partnered with this company in New York uh, to modify uh, a Nike shoe. They're calling it the Satan shoe. Um, let's see. It's got you know six 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 on it. It's got um, uh, a Bible reference, uh, Luke ten eighteen, I believe, uh, which is a reference to Jesus saying, "I saw Satan fall like oh, lightning." lightning. Uh, there is a pentagram, um, brass piece on it there is oh in the sole of the shoe there's red ink with a drop of human blood um from folks in that company in new york um if you have watched any of the videos the unboxing of, of these shoes you know that you know people have received it's you know decorated with um uh these devilish images and so people are like losing their minds oh, and by the way and by the way um they made uh 666 shoes and they all sold out um mm -hmm. i think they were they were selling for a thousand eighteen dollars again reference to luke 10 18 and um yeah they sold out but um our some of our maybe even many of our christian brothers and sisters are really um deeply deeply troubled um by it uh, they're upset i part of my takeaway um is that i you know i just well first of all let me say i i I believe the devil is a real entity person. And so that that's not a fictional thing for me. And at the same time, I know that the devil is tricky. The, the, the devil knows how to um, run an okie doke mm -hmm. on, on human beings. And it seems to me that this is a nice distraction uh, from talking about gun violence or racism or white supremacy, right? And so I think there are, are, are people in the church who would much rather focus on this because um, uh, sown into the nature of the church, sown into the nature of Christians, and this is not a criticism, uh, sown into our nature is this desire to be for good and against evil. However, we perceive those two things. Perceive those two things. We want to be for the good and against the evil, and so um, 
with these images and I, I watched the video and yes, the images for me are, are, are disturbing. There was parts of the video I thought, okay, whoa, that is really, it, that's a, that's far. Um, but at the same time, um, I think the enemy of our souls uh, would welcome this kind of dist distraction, Christians focusing on this instead of of social righteousness, social justice, which is much more difficult. Also known as justice. Yes. Social justice is, is justice. justice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's 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 kind of my my takeaway. Um, I I wish we were not so triggered. I mean, I mm -hmm. I grew up in the '80s, and I remember in the '80s there was a lot of Christian talk about rock music and people were playing records backwards, listening for uh, satanic messages. And it was a huge thing. And I had friends like, okay, we're going to get together. We got a kiss album. We got a queen album. We're going to, and you know, I was like, and they're like, and they, you know, they play it backwards. And did you hear that? Did you? And it was like a real thing. And now in retrospect, I think, Boy, that was how how silly and frankly quite superstitious that was. Right. And well, I'm concerned that yeah. this is that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have so much to say about this, unsurprisingly. <laughs> so much to say. First of all, I think, yeah, it we want to be for the good and against evil. And the enemy of our souls convinces us that looks like being for us and against everyone else, right? And so you know, the church has not wanted, by and large, and certainly in its public witness, so people who are not in the church, if they describe Christians, they're going to say, oh, Christians are the ones who don't want to talk about racism, don't want to talk about war, don't want to talk about systemic po po uh, poverty, don't want to talk about climate change, don't want to talk about justice. Like none, none of these issues does the Christian church, um, the most visible platforms of Christianity to non-Christians. We don't want to talk about any of that. That which would not, not be evil. true of the early church. Which would yeah. not be true of the yes. early church. Mm -hmm. But, I, but you know, when people are looking at what is mainstreamed and successful in Christianity, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we, the Christian church is, is presenting a narrative as if Jesus himself is okay with all of those things, right? So we, we are not triggered by any of those things. So then when the body... Um, reacts with hysteria and outrage to a pair of shoes. And I would like to point out that any pair of shoes that costs $1,018 is satanic, in my opinion, not because there's a pentagram hanging on it, but because we live in a world where the distribution of resources is so, is so skewed, right? So we're triggered by this shoe, but we're not triggered by the idea that there are people and there are individuals in the world that have more money than than forty percent of the global population, but we don't think that's evil. That's just another day at the office for us. We got nothing to say. Like this is, I mean, hugely problematic to me. Like to your point, that the body of Christ is so easily, you know, we don't want to do the hard work of doing our own work of saying like our structures and traditions and institutions have been perverted and malformed in ways that conform to the world and not to the body of Christ. But we don't want to talk about that. But 
what somebody outside the body of Christ thinks about Satan is our business. Like, I just know I, I, I have zero time for that. Um, of the list of things that keep me up at night, this, these pairs of shoes are so far down the list that I can't even see the, I mean, like I will be triggered by this once the immigration crisis is resolved, once we have done with four profit prisons, once we have dismantled the school to prison pipeline, once we have figured out how we are going to make meaningful um, reconciliation in our country among different ethnic, I mean, like, are you, it's like saying your house is on fire, but the thing that really upsets you is you have an overdue library book. Like, it's just not, it's not a thing um, for me. I just, I mean, and then the other thing that I think is so interesting is people, I mean, because you mentioned the video and sort of two things happen at once. This um, young man, little Nas X, who has a real name, Montero, something Montero. Montero yeah. Um, he is a young, black, gay man. And so this video that he released, um, which the subtitle was Call Me By Your Name, which is in reference to a movie that I didn't watch, but is about... Um, a young man discovering his sexual identity um, as a gay man. And this video I've been reading about, and basically, I mean, it is filled with religious imagery. Um, Explain, you know, again, and I think part of the issue is I see as a white person, a lot of um, bias being um, revealed um in this way that you know people want to just say like well this person is just you know trying to trigger everyone and try you know there's no thought behind this there's he's not trying to say anything he's just trying to say i love satan i mean it's ridiculous this video is so intentionally designed and what he is talking about basically there's a reference in the beginning um to uh, I mean you've got the tree of life you know you have the tree of life there you have I haven't seen the video I've just read about it but um, and there's an inscription on it that's a in Greek that's a in reference to a Platonic myth so a myth by Plato this idea that um, the the Greek god Zeus was threatened by the power of humans and at the time humans were sort of um, by like each human was made up of what we would call two humans. So it would be two men joined together, two women joined together and a man and a woman joined together. And that was the natural form of humans, according to this myth. And Zeus was threatened by their power. I don't see how they could have even walked in a line, but apparently <laughs> these little conjoined twin people were very powerful and Zeus was threatened by their power, but he didn't want to destroy them because they worshiped him. And so he cut them all in half. And so from this rises the myth of a soulmate so that all of us, in the world, according to this myth, are looking for our soulmate. And when you find your soulmate, I mean, you hear this in popular culture, it's like you're finding your other half, right? Like, even though we don't know that myth, that myth is still shaping our cultural understanding of love and romantic love. And so, you know, in this platonic myth, you see then this understanding of heterosexual and homosexual romantic attraction is, is in this myth. I'm not saying I quote, believe in this myth, I'm saying, it's a cultural reference point. So he's referencing it in this, in this video. And part of what he does is go down into hell to find his other half. He's not down there to worship the devil. 
he is down there because he has internalized the Christian damnation and rejection of gay people because he grew up in Christian communities where he was told that who he, he is is an abomination before the Lord and that he is going to be damned to suffer in hellfire for for all of eternity. And so in this myth, in this video, call me by he is claiming his identity as a black man and he is saying if I have to go down into the pits of hell to find my whole self and rescue it, then that's what I'm going to do. And I would say to Christians who are triggered by that, I would say, it seems to me that all he has done is believed you. Like if your church is out there saying, you're disgusting, you're gonna burn in hell for forever. And he isn't arguing back. He's saying, okay, there's no place for me in the body of Christ. Um, my only freedom and wholeness comes in just going to hell. And at least I will find acceptance and love there. So the person who ought to be convicted by this video is not little Nas X. It is, should be the body of Christ because so many people in the gay community have just heard the body of Christ say, you disgust us. You have no part of us. God wants nothing to do with you. Jesus isn't good news for you. You go to hell. And this guy's saying, okay, like if you won't love me, I'll go find love where I can. And you've told me it is far away from you. So I'm listening. Yeah. Last night as I was watching uh, the video, I wrote in my notes, he has real pain. Uh-huh maybe even much of it caused by the church. Mm -hmm. And he is trying to say, I'm hurting. Um, right. And, and that, that is really his message. And um, I saw part of the letter he wrote to his 14 year old self. Um, and it's, it's a letter he wrote to himself about coming out. And he said, um, he said, I know we promised to die with this secret um, and then at the beginning of the video, there's a, a voiceover, it's his voice, uh, that says, um, we hide parts of ourselves we don't want others to see. And so, yeah, he is really expressing a lot of pain. And to go back to our conversation a moment ago about how can the church be a soft place for people <laughs> to fall in this season? And how can the church be a, a soft place for someone like him? Um, and, and I don't think we're asking that question, but clearly no. he's in pain. And one of my concerns for him is not only the pain he is currently experiencing, I'm also concerned that, and I hope I say this correctly, I'm concerned that he is in an industry that may be using him yeah. um, to advance something, um, but they are exploiting his pain because uh, the, the video, somebody paid a lot of money for that yeah. video. And I know Old Town, Old Town Road probably made a few bucks, but that video cost I'm sure a lot of money. And so somebody is funding that. And so I, I'm concerned that um, people who are, who may be appearing to be his friends and allies in this moment, mm 
um, may turn their backs and there's another place of hurt. But more than that, I'm asking, how, how can the church speak to his pain? Right. Well, I mean, I just think one thing that we know for sure is. Wait, when... Can I say one other thing? Oh, sure. Um, I was watching the video and um, like there was part of me that could connect and part of me that just could not relate at all. Like I totally get the struggle of being black in America and like I, I, I felt some of that in the video, but more than that, like I just have no idea what it must be like, what, what, it, what it, the, the, the pain of what it must, the pain you must feel of being gay, the, the pain of being uh, transgendered. I just, that's not my experience. And so um, I was trying to, like when, when the images really disturbed me, I was trying to see it, the, the disturbing images as an expression of a level of pain that is not my experience. That's how I tried mm -hmm. to translate it um, mm -hmm. and not, oh, this guy just wants to worship the devil. Um, mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I just think that we have done, Jesus has terrible marketing. Jesus has a terrible marketing department and that's us. And, you know, again, um, we, um, we, we, we have done this and we need to take responsibility for um, how people have internalized the gospel. Um, because if we've made somebody feel like they have more of a chance of life in hell, worshiping the devil, then, you know, that's on us. And, and I, I, you know, one thing that you and I know for sure is, um, if the church rejects a suffering person or a sinner and the church says you have no place here because we are the body of Christ and sends that person somewhere else, um, Jesus will meet that person wherever the church has banished them to. Right. I mean, if, if we're sending people to hell, Jesus is the one who, who hallowed hell. Right. And, and so I think, you know, that's, again, so much of religion is about trying to control people. Um, well, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, and so we need to um, just sort of recognize, you know, our job is not to condemn Lil Nas X. Our job is to say, is this true? Is this theology that he's absorbed? Is it true? And if it's not true, it's not his job to accurately represent Jesus Christ in the world, it's ours. And so we need to take responsibility for our own stuff. And I am not responsible for shoes. I am responsible um, for glorifying and magnifying the Lord in, in the world. So um, yeah, I, I just, I think it's really interesting. I'm actually kind of happy that the church hasn't been more triggered by it than, <laughs> than I've seen, um, but, we, but we need to respond. Well, I was surprised that I didn't already know about it until you and I talked about it yesterday. And I think it was because it dropped on Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. And in this pandemic, you know, Sunday 
I'm, by the time we get to Sunday, I'm so tired. I'm out. I don't turn on devices and I'm just like, I was outside yesterday playing basketball with my seven-year-old and, you know, feeling like a giant because whenever he shot, I could jump up and swat, swat it down. Um, yeah, that's, I know I'm not a very good parent, but that's what I was doing. And so um, You're a very I good think, parent. You just might not be a very good basketball player. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think I say all that to say there's probably more convert. There's probably a wave of, of, of response coming. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And there needs to be, I, I mean, like, I think that that's an opportunity for dialogue. That is a gift. And I, and again, if, if nothing else, I mean, I think your point is what we see is I mean, the very least of it is we see someone who was deeply wounded by the body of Christ in the past, right? And so I don't make any, you know, I, I think, um, and again, I, I, don't, I don't really follow a lot of music, um, and shocking to no one is the fact that I'm not really into hip hop, so I don't know, <laughs> but like I, my impression of Little Oz X is he is a person um, who right now is is feeling just lots of joy and and wholeness in his identity and being able to be great, um, honest about who he is. And so I certainly not my place to tell him how he feels. Um, although I think you're right, and this is not unique to him. Like this is what we do in our culture is we we have super pop stars and we lift them up and say they're wonderful, and then we tear them down and destroy them. So I think that kind of vulnerability is is real for everyone. Um, but the but. But what he is showing is how deeply he's been harmed and hurt by the body of Christ. And we need to care about that because most of the people who get harmed like that do not become international superstars and make a video to show us, right? Yes. So much yes. like he's not the only one. And so we need to look at that and say, this is the message that a lot of gay people and gay children are absorbing from the church. And are we okay with that? Or do we need to do better? And I think he actually... He may may have tweeted or said, or maybe someone else said it, but I saw last night, I, I think he tweeted that his purpose was to make others hurt the way he felt hurt, right? Mm -hmm. That that's, that's mm -hmm. like he, he wanted people who condemned him to feel the kind to of hurt. To be condemned. Yeah, to feel the hurt. Yeah. I was like, oh. Well, then you've just given me the template to understand what you're doing here. Okay. Right. I, I can see it for, for what it is. Um, because it's, it's true. If the, the satanic images, it's, oh, here we go. The, the images, that's the style. It's not the message. Right. It's the vehicle. It's not the destination. It's not the point. He's using those images to say something else. And if you get and stuck on the images, you're going to miss it, it. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, if he is condemning the church, who taught him how to do that? Mm -hmm. The church. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, exactly to the point, we would say that we, we would say like, well, I know you feel condemned, but the message is we love you. I mean, is yeah. it though? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can but, say that, but you know, so I, I think we need to really be convicted, not to convict, but be convicted by all of this. Um, and and the um, images are very disturbing. In the beginning, it's like, okay, all right. I kind of see what you're doing here. By the time you get about halfway through, it's 
difficult to watch. I found mm-hmm. it personally difficult to watch. Um, and and his life being rejected by those who say they represent the Lord of Love. I mean, th- that pain is coming from somewhere, and I think we need to recognize that. I mean, and it's related to this. You know, another thing that's very much triggering the body of Christ right now. Um, one of the ways that we are saying, like, we don't have to care about what's going on at the border, and we don't have to care about police brutality and we don't have to care about police murdering people is to say, well, like, look at the Grammys when they were doing the song, um, the WAP song, and there was a really explicit dance on the stage and people are saying like, oh, so we have to like ban Dr. Seuss, but this is okay. And I'm like, friends, just stop. Like, just stop. If, if we don't care about the thing, if we don't care about the things of justice, if we don't care about the actual suffering of of people who are dying of poverty and preventable diseases and we we don't care about any of that then we don't get to be mad that people offend our sensibilities like we have a chance to shape culture and we're not doing it so we then shouldn't be mad that people aren't are no longer you know modeling our values we are we are turning a blind eye to much of the suffering that's happening in the world and implicitly saying that God is good with it or that God is indifferent to it. That's not the gospel. People don't know the gospel and, and that's our job, not theirs. Um, yeah. Right. Well, it's not lost on me that both um, Cardi B and Lil Nas X are, are black folks and they have been um, labeled a certain type of person Mm -hmm. and their response has been to say, okay, if you're going to call me this, I'm going to lean into it. Correct. And I'm I'm going to show it to you. You tell me I am. I'm I'm going to hold up. I'm going to show it to you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very uncomfortable. Like Cardi B is like, okay, you, you, you say I'm this kind of woman. Okay. I'm, I'm going to lean into, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. And, Mm -hmm. and I've heard her talk about this song before and about the uh, music industry in general. And she's like, listen, for decades, men, when they rap have said horrible things about women sexually and like people rock with it in their cars and wherever in the club and like this well, I mean, one song people go, lose their minds right but you don't even have to go there I mean, you talk about the way that we um just sort of have a whole myth of like boys will be boys and it doesn't yeah. matter what mm-hmm. men do in college they're just i mean whatever i mean there just <laughs> is a way that, that we excuse we overlook behavior in some people and crucify other people for for the same behavior and i mean like we cannot see our hypocrisy but the world can so kate what are you thinking about well i am thinking about the trial of derek chauvin that started this week in Minneapolis. Um, And I just, I mean, I have lots of emotions around that um, and mainly a sense of dread. Um, So I I am somebody, both of my parents were lawyers. So I grew up 
um, really not understanding um, anything to do with race, A. I mean, I sort of grew up on Sesame Street and I thought that's the way the world was. Um, and um, I grew up as the daughter of two lawyers. And so I, I grew up with a very um, mythologized understanding of the American justice system. Um, you know, I used to stay up late and watch the paper chase with my parents. Like, I, I mean, wow. that probably doesn't even mean anything to anyone, but I just um, really you know, that's what we believed in in my family. We weren't um, church people, we weren't believers, um, but there was this, I mean, to the extent that there was a larger story in my family, it was a story of um, justice and um, maybe meritocracy. And anyway, <laughs> um, and I, you know, it has been really, um, obviously that is a function of privilege. I understand that. And it's still just interesting for me to note um, just how long my process of being able to look at the reality of um, not the ideals of the American justice system, but the reality of it. And I and I would say that I I appreciate, and as a pastor, I think like we get this a lot. I appreciate the that just because you're not living up to ideals doesn't mean you abandon them, right? So I I really appreciate the ideals of the American justice system because it is justice, you know, this idea that people are um, presumed innocent and the burden of proof is on the state. And like, I can remember my dad, um, gosh, he, he, I mean, so many times I remember him quoting like better a thousand um, guilty men go free than one innocent man um, be imprisoned like that. Mm. I don't know. Like that was a thing I grew up with. So um, even in, and in seminary, I, I definitely, um, I mean, began to understand scripture for the first time and began to understand um, just scriptures um, demand imperative for justice. And I began to connect some of those dots, but it wasn't really until I began in ministry um, and was called and gifted and privileged to serve in communities who ex whose experience of the American criminal justice system was so different than, than, um, than my, you know, white communities experience was that I really began to see up close just um, the tragedy of it. And I, you know, and I thought that I understood that. I thought that I had a very realistic understanding of that. Um, you know, my first call, I remember going to court with a young man or he was in jail. I wasn't going to court with him. I was going to the courtroom and um, in Boston and um, it was so incredible. And I was sitting next to his public defender and we were waiting for his turn. And, you know, you just have to get there and, and wait. And so at the beginning, there were just all of these people who, who were not in jail. So those were the people who they were showing up for court summons, but they had been released on bail. So, and this was right by Boston College. This is where the courtroom was in Boston. And so the first like just whole group of people were all of these young white college men. And they came up one after another and they were all drug charges. And, you know, they came up, there was a procedure that I did not understand. And then they walked back out the door. 
Um, and I think that this was pre-trial stuff. I mean, it wasn't an actual trial. And and I remember like one of the guys I'm listening, I don't really understand the charges, but you can kind of extrapolate. And they're talking about how much and I'm like, oh, this guy is not um, arrested for possession. This young man has been arrested for, for dealing, right? Walk up to the front. Yes, your honor. No, your honor. Walk right back out center aisle on with your life. And then they brought in all the people who were coming from jail. And so now they are all people of color in my memory, all men. And so it's all these drug charges in and out, nothing. And, and then, you know, the other charges of these, uh, I mean, the one I remember most, and this was not the young man I was there for, but I was just listening and I couldn't understand it. And I turned to his lawyer and I was like, did I understand that right? And he's like, yes, that man is in jail because he stole diapers from a CVS, right? So I'm just watching this disparity of, you know, young white men in college who are using hard drugs, selling hard drugs. They are out and about in the community, moving on with their lives. You know, a black man who is sitting in jail awaiting trial because he stole Diaper, literally diapers from a CVS. And our justice system is set up in a way that that is a man who must be imprisoned, but drug dealers can be on the street as long as they're white and in college, right? I mean, like I saw that that day and, you know, like scales fall from your eyes. And that, I mean, was years ago, I'm, <laughs> I'm old. And so I really thought I understood. And then I remember, um, in the George Zimmerman trial, which was just what, like five years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And we had a, um, a summer intern um, from Wake Forest Divinity School, a young black woman who had started in law school and now she was in seminary. And the trial was going on that summer. And I was so certain that George Zimmerman was going to be convicted. Like I just, I could not, I, I really believed that, you know, this is a man who shot a child in the street. This child had done nothing wrong. He, I, I just, I, it was, unf I was so, and I just remember, you know, talking to Janice about that. And I, I mean, bless, bless her. Like I was her supervisor and, um, you know, I just remember her looking at me and being like, oh, he will not be convicted. And I couldn't understand that. I thought that she was saying that to me as, you know, because she'd been to law school. Like I didn't understand. And then like, I'm like, oh, I'm such a, an idiot. Like she's just saying this to me as a black woman. Like she understands mm -hmm. what is going to happen. And I, I, you know, I, I just, I continue to be so surprised at myself at how much faith I still have, quote, in the system, even though, even though I should know better based on the generosity of people who have shared their stories in the world based on the, I mean, you know, like you just keep thinking like, oh, this, um, this, <laughs> you know, justice is gonna come through. And um, so I just, um, Again, I, I think it really matters that we continue to, you know, cynicism is not an option. And the reality is going into this trial, I feel 
I mean, everyone feels it's inevitable that Derek Chauvin will not be convicted of anything. And that is, and I just want people who are okay with that to think about what that means. So what that means is in the United States of America, it is okay, it is not a crime for a police officer to suspect someone of a crime, strangle them, execute them, strangle them to death on the sidewalk, and and that's okay. And I, and and I don't, you know, I, I understand that much like scripture, the law can be manipulated to justify anything or excuse anything. But I think that we, as um, people who live here and people who also are of the kingdom, you have to be clear that it, that if the law says that that's okay, we have to be able to testify to otherwise, and we have to not. Um, you know, to really, to really look at it from the context of our primary story, which is the story of our savior who was executed by the state perfectly legally for no crime. And it was just another day at the office and to understand, um, you know, that America is functioning as an empire and not as a city on a hill that we, we often claim that it could be. And, the last thing I want to say about that is like just watching this trial, which is um, it's it's just further. Um, I mean that the victim is on trial, and I, I and every single trope about white supremacy, um, every single stereotype about you know the big strong black man whose body is a weapon, and the, it like every, every single thing, and I and that is just just watching it is. Um, so it's like watching a horror movie and and to understand the trauma that that puts every um, person of color through just to watch writ large in the institutions that define our country, the system once again say, these lives don't matter. Um, and you know, if people don't understand why why Black Lives Matter, why not all lives matter, this is why. Because right now we are watching played out for the next months a legal process that is going to say the death of this man doesn't matter. It was okay, and and that is why people have to say no. Actually, Black lives, like George Floyd's lives, they do matter, even if the court says it doesn't matter. It does. And um, also, if George Floyd's drug past is relevant. And I don't think it is. I mean, the reality is either we tell police officers they can execute people on the street without a crime, which as the one raised in the paper chase household, I mean, this was the whole thing, innocent until proven guilty. Everyone has the right to a fair and just trial, right? Like that's what we say we believe in as a country. So if we say, no, actually it's okay though, sometimes for police officers to execute people on the streets, then we just need to be honest about the fact that that's not what we believe in. And if George Zimmerman's drug, I'm sorry, if George Floyd's, sorry, child, child in the room, if George Floyd's drug history is relevant, then so is Derek Chauvin's. And I, and I wanna see that happen. And I want people to start answering questions about like why, um, you know, I, I just, the idea, and we're talking as pastors, not as pastors who happen to be citizens in America, but I mean, the whole idea of, of the, for the government, for the people, of the people, by the people is that means if the people see 
wow, this is not what we were taught, then we are supposed to not just accept it as inevitable, but to, to go ahead and use the system to say, this needs to change. And, if, and I think so many Christians just hear experts in different fields say, well, this is the way it is. And we go, oh, okay, this is the way it is. Or even worse, we say, and I see this all the time, Christians saying like, well, there will never be justice until we go to heaven. Like, I mean, that is easy to say when police officers aren't killing people who look like you in the street. Or until you're asked to wear a mask and then it's like, my freedom, my freedom. Anyway, that that's... Well, what you're talking about uh, highlights once again um, how we need to focus on systemic racism because for so many in the church, especially in the church, uh, racism is seen as a personal and individual moral issue. And because I don't feel hatred in my heart toward a particular person or people or group, that means racism, it, I don't have anything to do with racism. And, um, and because I don't know anybody that has that kind of hatred, it must be a rare thing. And so I think the church is just really blind. Uh, much of the church is blind to systemic racism. And um, we, can, we can find our own scriptures pointing to it, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about powers and principalities. If there are um, evils that are bigger than uh, individual sin, and the church, white evangelical church especially, has refused to apply what it knows about the scriptures to systemic racism. Well, and I think one of the reasons that people just need to take a beat and think about this, you know, think about this idea, if you understand racism as just the way one person feels about another group of people, and that's all it is. And that's, you know, all the quotes that you see about racism isn't a skin problem, it's a sin problem, right? This idea <laughs> that like, oh, if we could just get people to stop hating people, everything would be fine. And if you be don't nice. hate anybody, then you're okay. I just, what you're positing is that people of color in this country are upset because some other people in this country don't like them, right? Like you're saying like, oh, racism is a problem because some white people don't like some black people. And that's what, what people of color are talking about all the time. And I just wanna say to you that I promise that that's not the issue. If you think that what is like stealing the quality of life from people of color in this country, it, like people are, are shook up inside because some, because members of the Ku Klux Klan don't like them. Like that's what the problem, it's not, that's not the problem. Like people of color are, are very okay with the idea that some people don't like them. Like that's not, it's not, this isn't middle school. I mean, the issue is how come our schools are failing? How come we're being convicted at three times the rate of white people who commit the same crimes? Like how come the prison populations are disproportionately filled with people of color? And even though people of color and white people commit crimes at exactly the same rate, how come, you know, in all the institutions that um, we work in, people, you know, people are promoted based on idea of who's a good, who's good leadership material. And those ideas are full of unexamined bias that privilege whiteness. You know, I mean, how come we live in communities where the water is not safe to drink and the air is not safe to breathe? Like, 
I, this is, these are the issues. I, I think that, you know, most people really are not chasing the acceptance or affirmation of other people who hate them. Like, that's not the issue. Let's solve all this other stuff. And then honestly, I just feel like most black people I know would be just fine if there are groups of white people who get together and talk about how they don't like black people. Cool. Just don't put me in prison. Don't poison my children's lungs. Don't, you know, make me pay taxes for services that I can't access. And fine, believe whatever you want to believe about me as long as I can live my life with liberty and justice and the pursuit of happiness like other people. I mean, I just like our um, my, my friend Justin Perry always talks about, you know, how people misunderstand the um, push to integrate the school systems. And like white people see that as like, oh, black people wanted to go to school with our kids. You know, black people wanted their friends to get the privilege of having white friends. No, <laughs> black people, black families wanted their children to have the same educational opportunities that white students had. And I mean, the deep irony is if people had just let it be separate, but equal, then people could have kept their integrated schools because it wasn't like black people were so desperate to go and be in community with white people who had made it very clear about the level of their white humanity, right? Like black people were not chasing affirmation of white people. They just wanted what was just and equal. And I think just that's why, I mean, I just think it's such a function of whiteness that we think oh, it's our, it's relationships with us that are desirable. And as long as we like you, you will be fine. And, and since I can tell you in all of my heart that I do like you, what's your problem? I think just this idea that it's not about white people is really hard for white people to understand. Yeah. And in this moment, I'm reminded of the debate that's happening in college sports right now with, um, athletes, um, being paid, you know, someone has suggested that, you know, here we have these universities who make a ton of money yep. on these athletes, mostly black and brown athletes, basketball and football. And they are using these kids. And so when you just take um, a quick look, a quick walkthrough of American history, you begin with the institution of slavery, um, a organized, systemic, and brutal way to use black bodies for the economic benefit of white people. Then when slavery ended, you had Jim Crow seeking to do the same thing um, and both the institution of slavery and Jim Crow um, was law. Ending Jim Crow, you still have forces seeking to find ways to use, to monetize, to abuse, to um, frankly make less than human black and brown bodies. To commodify them. Yes. And that is very real and we see it and I think it's 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 very challenging for white people to see that because once you see it then you immediately have to confront the reality 
that you benefit from it. Right. And, and also like, once you see it, you, you then, I mean, it really is like the scales fall off of your eyes and it's not just, you see this one thing in this one place or even lots of things and lots. I mean, it's just all of a sudden everything, you now see it through that lens. So like, I have these memories of my own childhood that are very meaningful to me. And, you know, it doesn't mean I have to, it doesn't change the way I feel about my parents. But now when I look back at those memories, you know, I, I now see them in the context of this larger story, which just, you know, it would, it would, I mean, on a, on a um, selfish level, like it would be nice just to be able to look back with nostalgia on, on those memories instead of recognizing like, oh, and again, this isn't about, this isn't about blaming or shaming anyone. I mean, I mean, I knew my parents taught me what they understood to be true and what they understood to be true was a reality that they experienced based on the fact that they didn't have really any relationships or contacts with people of color and certainly none where they would have had you know, had built up the kind of trust where people would be vulnerable and say, like, this is my experience. Like, you know, I think this is continues to be the problem that white people can, if they choose, live in a world where they never have to um, hear the truth. Um, and that's something that, you know, the truth is hard and it is, um, and it's painful. And I mean, and I think we were talking about this last week, like, you know, confronting that truth is really uncomfortable. And as white people, we have to understand like, okay, but some things are worth being uncomfortable for, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and so especially as followers of Jesus Christ, this idea that we need to confront sin in the world. I mean- That's not a new thing. Right, like <laughs> that's not like PhD level theology, right? Like that's- that's the thing. And I think sometimes we recognize like, oh goodness, we've been taught to sort of contort our understanding in all kinds of complicated ways to prevent us from just seeing that like this thing that's right in front of our face is, is the reality that scripture is trying to open our eyes to. Um, And I would add Mm -hmm. that the struggle isn't simply about ending white supremacy because for me that cannot be the primary focus it has to be a major focus but it cannot be the only focus because that gives the very thing I seek to end too much of my energy So I must also um, study pre-colonial Africa. I must also study the African history of the early church. Why? Because there is a, there's the larger issue of African humanity. And so our humanity is not defined by opposition to white supremacy. Right. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, beyond that, alongside that, um, I mean, because white people need to figure out how to understand, I mean, and this is a sociological point, well, not a theological one, but like something of how is whiteness not defined by yes. 
you know, oppression of other people. And, and how that even came to be. I mean, Correct. white people right. haven't always been called white people. There's Correct. a reason why white people are called white people. And um, I, I believe it has an American origin. I mean, it's, in the grand scheme of history, calling white people white people is a fairly new thing. Right. And I, But I just think to your point, like from our core identity as followers of Jesus, you know, what we know is that our ethnicity is an expression of the image of God, the Imago Dei, and it is good and it is not to be denied or trivialized. And we know that these are, these are pieces of the one image of God. And so we are, we are made for unity with God and one another. And I think, you know, one of the things that we um, can, I mean, it's exactly what you said, like our, our life together cannot be defined by what we are against because that centers our enemy instead of our savior. So our life together has to be defined by what we are for. So do we want to, you know, tell the truth about these structures that are powers and principalities of the kingdom of evil um, that are seeking to steal and kill and destroy life? Do you want to tell the truth about those? Absolutely. Do we want to conform them? Absolutely not. And we have to be defined centrally by what we're for. And so if, if it is not this that we've been told is just reality, we need to be able to um, clearly, consistently, passionately point to there's another way and here's what it looks like and here's what the foretaste of it is and here's what we're going for. And to me, like that is to come full circle, the point of how do we, we don't look away from a Derek Chauvin trial and I don't want Derek Chauvin to be hurt or, or or even hated or destroyed. What I want is for us to say this act was evil um, and to say that clearly. And I want, um, and then I, I want to be able to modify, like see Derek Chauvin's life through the lens of the Christian story, which is people are, are more than than the worst things they've ever done. And that George Floyd's life was was worthy of honor and redemption. Well, I mean, redemption's not the right word, but was worthy of honor and care. And and Derek Chauvin also was created in the image of God and his life is worthy of redemption. But it can't be redeemed if we all say that what he did was fine then he becomes defined by it. And that's, you know, ultimately what we want are everybody's chains to be broken. And we want healing and wholeness for every person created in the image of God for whom Jesus was willing to die. And so it's not about saying like, well, we used to hate black people. Now let's hate white people. That's not what it is. It's about recognizing, hey, there's an enemy who is trying to divide us one from another. And and we want to deny the enemy that power um, by by calling out um, the the evil in those strategies, and then also saying there is another way, and there is a way of reconciliation. But it starts with with truth telling, and it and and it includes repentance. Mm -hmm. And again, like Derek Derek Chauvin can't repent for anything if he's surrounded by tons of people who have told him that what he did was right. If people are out there 
you know, fundraising for him and telling him that he's the victim. He's not the victim. That doesn't mean he's spiritual garbage and worthy of destruction, but he is not the victim. He is the perpetrator. God loves the perpetrators, but God is not confused. <laughs> huh, it's Easter. What are you preaching about? Oh, something about an empty tomb. <laughs> Actually, I, I do think I'm going to um, stick with the Mark 16 text. I like that that version of the resurrection story where um, the women go to the tomb and they, on the way, they're asking who will roll away the stone and they get to the tomb and they find that the stone has already been rolled away. They look inside and there is a uh, an angel sitting there and the angel says, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. Uh, he's, he's risen. He is not here. And they leave the tomb um, afraid, bewildered, like speechless. Um, and that's just kind of how it ends. I, I like that more than um, the other gospel writers who give great detail, you know, Peter and John, they go in and they see the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. It's, it's there and it's folded. And I mean, there's just so much more detail. I like the simplicity of, of the, of Mark's telling it. And it leaves you with a kind of cliffhanger. I don't know if that's the right word, but the way it ends, it just, forces you to ask, what do I believe about Jesus? Did, did someone steal the body? Did he really rise from the dead? What has happened? And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lean there. I'm just struggling with um, what to say about everything we've talked about in this podcast in terms of what's going on in the world in light of the resurrection. Um, but I'm sure it'll just come down to uh, the joyful proclamation that because Jesus rose from the dead, all of these isms and systemic whatevers and injustice, it, this, is, this is the world that is passing away. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I also Jesus. think, like, to be able to say, like, Jesus was crushed by the same systems that are still crushing people. And so one thing that we should take away from this, from this story at the center of our faith and at the center of our identity is in raising Jesus from the dead, God vindicated Jesus, not, mm -hmm. not Pontius Pilate, not the Sanhedrin, not any of the people who made the choices that they made. I mean, and this is why I think um, a lot of the really simplistic atonement theology that people have been taught is really unhelpful because when you raise people up and tell them Jesus had to die, then then in, in a really unhelpful way, people come to see all the systems that killed Jesus as working, as doing God's will, right? And so I think it, it is important that people understand Jesus didn't have to die people killed him and the systems that people put their trust in and, and supported um, saw him as a threat and executed him. And, and so Jesus's death is a condemnation of, of human culture. 
and um, Jesus's words of forgiveness are, are God forgiving this sin, individual and systemic sin, and God raising Jesus from the dead is vindicating Jesus, not those structures, and is giving us hope that there is a reason to oppose these structures, that there is a power that is not limited by those structures. And so that, I mean, like to me, that's the connection between like, how can we still center God's action in these stories? And also, I mean, we need to be able to connect them to the things that are um, traumatizing God's people right now, but also not, I mean, people know the truth of those systems. So what we need to be able to do is help people see the power and inevitability of God's kingdom, which is illuminated on the cross. So that's, I think, um, the big trick. But too often, I mean, I get this tension of saying like, well, I don't want to preach every week about the most recent traumatic, horrific, evil injustice that has happened because we're not we're not there because people know that truth <laughs> and what we're there to do mm. is to speak the truth that otherwise will go un, un unsaid. Um, but people have to be able to say that they're part, it's the same story. I mean, there's only one reality. So I think that's, that's the big challenge. Um, I think the church, um, and I should probably own this, uh, cause, um, I, I think this is, um, hopefully not too much <laughs> me projecting my stuff on the church. Um, but I think it's true of, of just the church in general is that we have a, a hard time understanding how the kingdom of God has really broken into this world. Yeah. And so we fall back on well, let's just all go to heaven when, when we die. And it's hard for us to hold on to the resurrection of Jesus means that something of heaven, something powerful and real has broken into this world that is um, unjust and sick and distorted and is like um, yeast in dough. Contagious. Ha having I... an effect that yeah. something really is happening. Um, because as you've just suggested, we get so much of the, the news, the what's happening in this world context, in, in our, our daily lives, our, our, the context of the news, that uh, kingdom talk is... Well, that's just reserved for heaven talk. Well, and often well, people equate kingdom talk with heaven talk. Right. And often people say like, oh, well, God's realm is only my feelings and my individual life and God's not messing with this world. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, people have been taught that explicitly from the pulpit and it's not true. And understanding that God is broken in and the kingdom is invading. And it really means like, so where you stand matters, mm -hmm. Right. Where you stand matters because it's and that not the bad. struggle and that the struggle is not 
simply in your own strength. It's it's right. just there is a power behind um, the struggle that. Well, and, and your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against yeah. powers and principalities, which mm -hmm. means you can name actions without, um, you know, without, without um, calling for the destruction of the actors mm -hmm. um, because the kingdom of God. But I mean, I think it does mean, you know, a lot of us have been taught that that God appreciates expediency. Like God, I know that these, that, you know, this, move is not in in line with the character of your kingdom but i got to do what i got to do to get by in this world and then you know jesus did me a solid on the cross and it'll be all right on the no <laughs> like we live in the kingdom here and now and you know lining up with the powers that crucified jesus i mean again does that mean god hates you and wants to destroy you no but it means you are opposing god instead of participating in what God is doing. And yes, we cannot participate in what God is doing in our own strength, um, but we can surrender to God and say, I mean, I like that image of like, you know, thinking, going to the tomb and like, how are we going to get the stone moved away? I don't know, but we're going to go there anyway. And then when you get there, that barrier has been removed. I think that's a really good metaphor for what life is like in the kingdom. We have, we have so many reasons so many voices whispering in our ear saying like, there's no point you'll not like, it'll be a waste. It, it won't make a difference. And the reality is they're not lying to us about our own, our own potential, our own strength, but, but the whispers are acting as if we are the only factor in the equation when the power of the resurrection has been unleashed in the world. Yeah, and we are good. people who believe in that. Um, and who line up behind that and who believe in resurrection and not the powers of these um, of these systems that we're either taught to idealize or to despair of. I'm like, no, we believe in the power of the redeemed. Hey, that sounds like a word to me. That sounds like a sermon. You're ready to go. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Wednesday. And I don't know. I was really thinking about preaching Barnabas on Easter because... I know it's such a weird thing. Wait, I what? I know, and, you, and you, we've known each other long enough that you know that. Like, I have a thing about preachers who preach anything other than like, don't come at me with Corinthians on Easter Sunday, right? Like, no, we're here oh, for my. the empty tomb. give me the empty tomb. So I don't know. I had did I hear you say Barnabas? Yeah, I probably won't do it. But okay, yeah, because we we're about to have a moment in our friendship in which. Um, and this is pretty rare, <laughs> I know. but we were about to have a moment in which I was about to rescue you from yourself. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Barnabas. I, I wouldn't preach only Barnabas. Okay. But the problem is, I think that like. The more I think about it, the funnier it gets. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> sometimes like we come to Easter Sunday and we come to hear the story of the empty tomb <laughs> like yay God yay us and then we walk back out into our lives all right I'm feeling that okay you know? I like yeah. that this is the issue and so I mean what I like about Barnabas the Barnabas story is thinking about this idea that you know this was a man who was blind and then he met Jesus 
Oh, and, you mean Bartimaeus? Sorry, Bartimaeus. Yes. Okay. Yes, got sorry, it. Sorry, sorry. Bartimaeus. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Bartimaeus. And he was blind and then he met Jesus. And then for the rest of his life, he could see. And I just sort of feel like this, this moment of beholding the empty tomb, it has to be a moment where we have new sight, right? Like all of a sudden, like we used to navigate the world and live with, you know, blind to the reality of who God was and how God was and what God was doing. And now, now we can see. And it wasn't like Bartimaeus could like, was blind all the time until he looked at Jesus's face and then he could see Jesus's face. But when he was out, then he went back to being blind again. Right. And I just sort of feel like that's like, we walk into our sanctuaries and we're like, Oh, I see the world this way. And then we walk out and, and we go back to seeing it in the way we used to see. So I just, I feel like that is the challenge for me is to say like, I, if you leaving this moment on Easter Sunday, if, if what you experience is, Oh, God doesn't hate me that's great because that is true. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and if what, if what you leave Easter morning is saying like, Oh, I've been redeemed. Like I have eternal sacred worth. I'm beloved. That's true. And that is great. And if you leave Easter Sunday and you think I don't have to be afraid of death anymore, that is true. And that is great. (laughs) And there's still even more like, you know, those are, and I feel like for so long, people have been told like, these three things are all, this is what Easter means. It means God's not mad at you. It means you're not a garbage person. And it means you don't have to be afraid to die. And I, it, I don't want anyone to stop knowing those three things. Those three things are true. But the fourth thing that we see on the cross is, you know, the, the unleashing of the power of the kingdom of God on earth. Like we see the beginning of the, the God's um, plan from Genesis three to restore the world to Shalom, right? Like that is happening and we are a part of, we are to participate in that. And I feel like, you know, if we don't get that, we just kind of walk around blind in the world to what God is doing and, what God is dismantling and, and, and we end up not living the life that we were created to live and, and not glorifying the Lord in the way that we, we even would desire to glorify the Lord. And so, you know, that to me is the big challenge is how do we get people to see that it's not just your eternal destiny has been changed. And it's not that God, the way God feels about you has been changed. I mean, because for one thing, the way God feels about you has not been changed. It's not like God felt one way about you before the cross and a different way about you after. Like that's, you know, God is consistent. Um, but what what is changed when we see and understand the cross and the empty tomb, what has changed is our perception of reality. And, and I think for a lot of Christians, that hasn't been changed. Um, so we're still walking around blind. So how do we do that? Well, I mean, you go listen to awesome preachers like us, right? (laughs) Sure. Handled. As Olivia Pope says, hashtag 
handled. Like, what do I say to that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I do think that, you know, we need, we need a kind of revival in the church that um, does not, does not make the church look more like a fortune 500 spiritual mm. commodity broker. Like for too long, we have been allowing the world to define what a quote successful church is. I mean, and success is, is a um, quality of the world that is passing away instead of us going after being a fruitful, faithful church and recognizing that that, um, that that's different. And, um, you know, I mean, not for nothing, I think we need, we get way too whipped out about these Barna polls, but I mean, it is interesting this week that they just released a poll saying that for the first time, less than 50% of Americans report belonging to a church. Um, and people have all kinds of feelings about that. And I, you know, what I really think is a lot of Americans are seeing that the church is not, does not look like the body of Christ at all. And they're walking away from it and saying like, if I need a lifestyle um, <laughs> organization, I'll talk to Martha Stewart. <laughs> like I will go to Tabitha Brown, right? Like I do not need um, to be part of a community that doesn't, you know, doesn't look like what the plain sense of scripture tells me. Mm. I do not need one more place to be manipulated. I do not need one more place to be told, do this or else. I do not, I don't need one more place to be commodified as a cog in a wheel. And so people are walking away from the church and, you know, that is a, a, a tragedy on the, in the churches. I mean, like just, it, it is, I am in no way resigned to that, but I do think um, we need a revival in the church and, and that revival will start with repentance in the church. And um, when we return to the Lord, then, um, then, people, then people will follow us because the gospel is, in, the gospel is beautiful and people need the Lord um, and want the Lord and want the story. Um, so we need to return to it, walking by faith. And I remember when I was in seminary, I watched, uh, it was an ABC investigative special uh, by the late uh, Peter Jennings. And- Peter Jennings? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, it was- um, <laughs> Sorry. What's no. that? Peter Jennings, ABC News? No, I know who he is. I just didn't know he died. And I just distracted oh. you. Oh, sorry. Uh, but um, it was called In the Name of God. And I remember recording it on a VHS tape. And um, so it was all about, and this was what, um, early 90s? Uh, it was about the decline of the church in America, about fewer and fewer Americans attending churches. And um, I remember he did an interview with the founder of the Vineyard Charismatic Churches, uh, John Wimber. And John Wimber was kind of telling his story, how he was in the whole drug scene in California. He was a songwriter and um, uh, a, a music arranger. And he said he and his wife had this religious 
Christian awakening experience and they became followers of Jesus. And they said, well, what do followers of Jesus do? Well, they go to church. So he said, well, we started going to church. And he said, we were so disappointed. He said, we would go to Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians. We, he said, we tried all of them. And he said, every week we would leave frustrated. And he said, so finally, at the end of one of the service, I went up to a person with a little thing on their lapel that said elder. I said, well, this person must know something. And Wimber said, I, I went up to him and I, I said, when, do you, when are we going to do the stuff? Mm -hmm. And he, he said, what stuff? And Wimber said, the stuff in the Bible, you know, like uh, healing people and water into wine, all, all that stuff. And he uh, uh, looked at the camera and said, um, this elder said, oh, well, we believe in it, but we don't actually do that stuff. And then he mm -hmm. said to Peter Jennings, I was so disappointed. He said, because if I was going to follow Jesus, I wanted to I wanted to do Jesus stuff. I wanted to actually do the stuff, not just believe it in my head. And I just think that is the experience of many American Christians. Yeah. Um, and when they do experience the stuff, it's a very limited, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, for Pentecostal, it might be a healing ministry for this group, another group, it might be something else. But when it comes to the fullness of the um, inbreaking of the kingdom and the um, the power of the Holy Spirit, the reality that the kingdom has arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is so far from us that um, a lot yeah. of people, they don't get an opportunity to ask or don't take the opportunity to ask, when are we gonna do the stuff? They just know something's missing and they're walking away. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I think in churches, we, again, like we, those of us who are inside churches, like they, these institutions are helping us experience the presence and the reality and the love of God. Like it, and so because that's working for us as it is, mm. we, to some extent, you know, we just invite people in to be part of the institution instead of understanding that the institution is a means to an end and the end is Jesus. And so to be able to say, Hey, you know, in fact, we were, we were in a session meeting this past week and I was like, look, you know, we, the question will always be, how can we be more faithful? Like that will always be the question in our church is like, how are we growing and changing next? But because we are not, yeah, because un until, you know, until we are turning water into wine, until we, I mean, like until, until we have fully realized the power of Jesus in our community, we have growing to do. And that's not something to feel ashamed of. That's a, something to feel great desire for to say, like, you know, I think that as Christians, we ask too little of God um, and, and we ask for the wrong stuff. <laughs> and when people come into our communities, we, you know, we ask too much of the wrong thing of them and and not enough you know not enough of the right to say like come and let let's pray for this person who is sick and let's anoint them with oil and let's stand you know let let's stand up to these powers and principalities that are stealing and killing and destroying life and let's um let's pray for 
for renewal and new life and being born again and like real um, before and after stories. Like we just, we settle for so little because. And on this side of the second coming of Jesus, we must understand and embrace the reality that it's going to be both messy and beautiful and powerful. So the early church, I mean, they experienced the miraculous, they experienced Jesus in their midst, and they struggled with, can people of Greek descent and people of of Jewish descent be in the same church? The Apostle Paul had to confront Peter to his face, right? Uh, yeah. They were run out of town because as um, as Paul was uh, preaching uh, the gospel and people were believing, it disrupted the economic system. He didn't go in to disrupt the economic system of Ephesus, but when people turned away from buying the idols of Ephesus to um, to following Jesus, it disrupted things and it made people angry. But at the same time, they experienced the the guidance, the power. Um, 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 the miraculous of, of God in their midst. And so well, it's, it's and both. They, they turn their back on the lives that they had in order to mm. embrace the life that God was giving them. And, and, you know, because not only this, I mean, like they, they were, you know, arrested and persecuted and executed. I mean, like they were risking their lives immediately. Um, not recklessly, like nobody wanted to die, but that, you know, that was a reality, but I mean, it's interesting. And I know we need to stop. We're trying forever. I think we're both just procrastinating about Holy Week stuff we need to do, but um, <laughs> we get to do. But I just, I was talking to a friend the other day and um, they're doing some changes in their church, some really great changes in their church, which, which, revol- which require like repurposing different space. And so there's a, there's a room in the church that never gets used and they're, they need to start using it so that they can use other space for out, whatever. Um, but there's this beautiful room in the church that is set aside and only used for, only used very, very rarely. And um, she, the, my friend was saying, um, we, we need to stop using this other room for that purpose and this beautiful set apart. We never use it, like we're going to use it more often. And, and um, a member in the church was saying, well, we can't, once we start using it, it'll get dingy, but if we don't use it, it stays pristine. Right. And this, this idea that like, wow, we don't, we want our faith to stay pristine, right? Like Mm. we, we won't, we don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to be confused. We don't want to be heartbroken by God. So if we just kind of keep our, our faith in a box and, and really, don't don't invite it into saying like god where are you in the midst of the derek chauvin trial and we don't invite it into like my neighbor you know hates me and we're fighting like you know or i've got this unreconciled pain with my siblings or what like if we just don't invite god into any of that mess we can keep our faith pristine um but if we if we do it's gonna get dingy and and things that we we thought were true of God are going to be revealed to be not true. And things that we understood about ourselves are going to be revealed to be not true. Like like this, it won't be pristine, but it will be, it, it will be real. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we just, it, it's almost like we've misunderstood this idea of do not put the Lord thy God to the test to mean 
Like, let's just not move in the world in a way that we would move if we really believe that God was powerful and these principalities were walking away. Like, we just don't want to put God to the test. So we just mm. won't. And we'll just kind of sit on the sidelines as best we can in this life. And, and then, you know, like turn to our pristine faith when death is imminent. Um, anyway, I just thought it's such a good image of like- That is a great want image. Wants a church to be pristine. Wow. And that is something Jesus never was. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we got to quit talking. We're going to have to do this literally as a two-part thing. Uh, thanks for listening. If anybody's still listening, <laughs> you are a champ. Um, if you uh, want to find out more about Yolanda's ministry, you want to check out Derrida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, pres.org. You can go find messages on the Podbean website. And you can go to their YouTube channel and worship with them on Easter Sunday morning or any Sunday morning. And if you want to find out more about the Grove Church where I serve, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can check out our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast. Look for the green tree um, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sundays on our live stream uh well on on facebook we'll premiere a video um and you can worship with us and that would be fantastic so thanks for listening to you and we will talk to you less next week 